Wright State University's number one stop for film talk and classic rock. It's Reels and Riffs. And now here's your host, fresh from the master control studio at WHIO and the only random in radio, it's Random Allen. Hello and welcome to Reels and Riffs. Time for a little R&R, which of course stands for Reels and Riffs. Today I am joined by a very special guest. He is a fencing instructor at Royal Arts Fencing Academy. He's been a HEMA instructor for over 10 years and he's my good friend, Frank Zamory. How's it going, man? It's going well, Random. How about yourself? It's going okay. How was your commute here? Well, aside from an accident on the highway on the way, taking three lanes down to one, everything else was good. Lots of very empty fields because it's Ohio. It's Ohio. We're known for corn, the hell is real sign, Grandpa's cheese barn, and more corn. That's about it. We got a great show for you today, folks. And now we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings. We're going to be talking about The Godfather. And also, we're going to be interviewing Frank at the end of the show about HEMA. What is it? What is historical fencing? And more coming up. Here's my big three. Here's Random's Big Three. Number one. New Amazon series Lord of the Rings and the Rings of Power is premiering in the fall. Will it be any good? Will it be respectful to Tolkien's vision of Middle-earth? Our thoughts coming up. Number two. The fight is done. We lost. After much anticipation, Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi will be released as a series to Disney Plus in May. Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen are back in their iconic roles. Our thoughts coming up. Number three. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. And finally, today The Godfather turns 50 years old. Does it still hold up as one of the greatest films of all time? The answers to these questions and more are coming up. Well, to start off, as most people saw last month on the Super Bowl and probably heard about um, for the past like year, Lord of the Rings, Reigns of Power is going to debut on September 2nd. The series is set during the Second Age of Middle-earth, during the Rise of Sauron, and during the Battle of the Last Alliance. Now, reactions have been quite mixed online, and we're um, quite mixed about it ourselves. But before we start um, talking about the show itself, Frank and I are big Tolkien fans and fans of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. What first exposed you to Tolkien and like what made you such a big fan? So my first exposure to Tolkien was my mother reading The Hobbit to me. It was one of the first chapter books that was ever read to me when I was young. And my mom is also a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. Uh, she reads the Lord of the Rings trilogy at least once a year, and once every two or three years, we'll reread the Silmarillion. That honestly, The Hobbit is like, given how Tolkien read it, like wrote it for his kids, that's a very good like you know first chapter book to you know start off with when you're a little kid. Yeah, and must have done something right. I've been a lifelong lover of reading. Um, my wife is always concerned that my library is kind of outgrowing the bookshelves that we have so we need to keep Marie condoing everything down and keep it at a manageable size but yeah 
uh, even with everything I've ever read, Lord of the Rings will always be one of my favorite fantasy series. What did you think about the movie adaptations? I really loved Peter Jackson's uh, adaptations of the Lord of the Rings series. I won't get into my feelings on The Hobbit. Hobbit. That's a whole different thing. We're only going to be ranting enough at the end of the segment. But, like, I entirely agree. And it's really impressive that he was able to do what he did in adapting it. Because, you know, he changed up some stuff. But, like, for a long time, Lord of the Rings was essentially considered, like, like unadaptable in live action. There were many attempts at it, including a very strange um The Russian proposed... version. There was the Russian version. Uh, there was the proposed Beatles version. version. With Stanley Kubrick as the director. Which, you know, we talk about the Beatles a lot in the show. We talk about classic rock. And... Seeing, I think it's pretty telling that John wanted to be Gollum. Like, I could, I, honestly, I could kind of see it. Like, I, it wouldn't be a very good Lord of the Rings, like, film, but it would be very entertaining. Like, if you like A Hard Day's Night and, like, um, Help and stuff, it'd be kind of that zany feel. So, there's actually a story, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, that um, Tolkien lived nearby to where the Beatles used to practice. And one of the reasons he said no to them making the film was because he described the racket that they made as indescribable. <laughs> this is Tolkien, the man who could describe any forest for four pages and still keep your attention, saying that the sounds that were coming out of that garage were indescribable. He had to go Lovecraftian in order to even try... <laughs> that, I don't know if that's apocryphal either. That's the first thing I'm hearing about it, but it's quite hilarious. One of the biggest things about, like, I originally got exposed to the series by the films because I'm a little bit younger than you. I'm 26. And it, like, you know, it marvelized me, like, as a kid where, like, you know, it was so well done. It did a really good job of, like, you know, showing this world and, like, all the characters were, like, for the most part, very well cast. And it's just one of those series that kind of spurs your imagination. It led me to eventually read the trilogy and then um, read The Hobbit and then read The Silmarillion because I'm crazy like that. But that's one of the coolest things about Tolkien to me is that with a lot of, like, series, as you kind of run into this issue where... Air, like, you know, you want to look into it more. I'm one of those people who wants to look into, like, the lore of a series more. And then you find out that it has the depth of a kiddie pool. You can definitely not say that about Tolkien. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how much backstory there is. And when, like, someone comes on stage and you see, you know, people like me, my mom, my wife start getting giddy about oh my god, this guy was around in the second age and he did all of this cool stuff and, like, other people are just like, I, I don't get it. Why does, why does any of this matter? It's like, this elf died and came back after fighting a Balrog. He presages what happens with Gandalf. When you're trying to explain Glorfindel to people who don't know who Glorfindel is that actually anything is, about yeah, him. Glorfindel yeah. is the one I'm referencing because, yeah, he died fighting a Balrog and got to come back with even more power, which is part of the reason that he wasn't allowed to be one of the nine because he would draw too much attention because he's that big of a name that Sauron's eye would be ever upon him. He's like and, a huge nightlight in the middle of Mordor. Yeah, and so when you're trying to explain to people why you are so excited about this background character who gets replaced by Arwen, which I absolutely get it. Like, there are too many characters 
for in the book to make every single person a big part that you want them to have and taking Glorfindel's one really cool moment and giving it to someone that we would see more of, it makes sense. And that's part of what's necessary for any good adaptation. You want to keep the core of what made the piece beautiful. You want to keep with the theories behind it. But you have to change it in ways that makes it work for the medium. Yeah, especially because they're trying to reach a mass audience and stuff. And, like, Glorfindel doesn't really come back in the story. Like, if you know his backstory, it's really cool to have him in, like, Fellowship. But, like, having Arwen, who really didn't get expanded on that much in the story itself, like, you know, come and, like, you know, you get a better sense of her relationship to Aragorn. And it makes sense for them to make that change from a filmmaking perspective where they're like, okay, we're going to reincorporate this later. Yeah, it it is one of those things that you should have to change it. And even looking at her story, even reading the Lord of the Rings, you don't get her whole story because her story is a retelling of Beren and Luthien, which the first time that Aragorn sees her, he calls her to Nuviel because he thinks that he is seeing his ancestor, very, very distant ancestor again. It's, that is really one of the, one of the coolest things about reading the Silmarillion for the first time for me is, like, I'm a big fan of mythology, like Greek mythology, like um, Greek, Greek and Roman mythology, Egyptian mythology, and it definitely feels like, it feels on that kind of scale with, like, those kind of stories, and it's really nice to see how it ties into, like, the actual um, works that, you know, it became the backstory for, like, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and before we were probably sounding like huge nerds right now. So I mean never. Yeah, we're not nerds. No, we we like like manly things like football and beer. Okay, well, uh, you know. You one of those two. Yeah, one of those two. I I don't know why but for some reason any sword fight in like martial art is associated with drinking in some way, whether it be fencing, kendo or hema. Historically that did happen. There's a picture in a fencing manual of a fencing school a brothel, and a bar all along together on a single block just right next to each other, which might tell you something about what was on the mind of those students. Very, very interesting. So now we are going to go into the part where we probably are going to start ranting a little bit, um, probably more than a little bit. The Amazon series, Lord of the Rings and the Rings of Power. First impressions from the trailer. So, um... I am interested to see Galadriel have a more expanded role. She was considered one of the greatest forces at holding back Sauron's influence during the Third Age. And that is really interesting. But at the same time, I don't know if making her a commander of armies is necessarily the way to show her strength. I don't know if that's going to get the same message across as what the original books were going for. She's been around since the first age. She was there at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. So, like, she has this long, incredible history. But to then say, well, we can't find anything interesting to do with her, so we need to make her a military commander. 
I'm reserving judgment. I do want to see how it goes, but I've already got some misgivings on that particular piece. One of the biggest things, like, the, well, the first, like, seeing the trailer, the first thing that spoke to me is beautiful. Like, you know, the effects are, like, beautiful. Like, the actual quality of it is beautiful. But at the same time, like, um, kind of similar to what you were saying, where I feel like they're going to um, try to influence and, like, affect the story in, like, you know, to try to make it more. I've heard, like, rumors that they're trying to make it more like Game of Thrones and try to make it, like, to appeal to that audience. And with, like, the material that's adapting, essentially it's adapting from, like, the appendices and, like, Alcalabeth from, like, the... I don't think that that's actually... I think it's part of the end of the Silmarillion. Like, I think that's still qualified because it was in my copy of it. Yeah. But, um... They're not, like, adapting from, like, you know, they're they're already making, like, a lot of changes for it. And I kind of feel like, you know, they're going to try to ew, take out some of what um, really made, like, you know, Tolkien's world special. So my understanding is from the Tolkien estate, they don't have the rights to a lot of the actual story that was going on during the Second Age. So they do have to change things around. Um I'm not sure exactly how accurate that is. I've not looked into the contracts that Amazon is signing with the Tolkien estate. But they have been pretty clear that they're telling a different version of the story. Which, for me, is a little sad because when I first heard rumors of they're making this show, I'm like, oh, it's going to be the fall of Numenor at the Second Age. Like, that's, yeah. that's the story to tell. The fall of Numenor up to the Battle of the Last Alliance of Elves and Men, and then you end it there. That's, And that could be really interesting. Yeah, to, if you were going to do any story aside from Baron and Luthien, that is the story I think that would be best adaptable. Not my favorite. Uh, Children of Hurin, uh, the story of Turin Toranbar, is my personal favorite story, but I also know that that one wouldn't necessarily be as easy to adapt or even to sell because like with um with the battle of the last lines you know going back for the second age to the fall of numenor that's more easily like to a general audience that's more easily connectable as a prequel to lord of the rings and it's hard to try to um like as hard as it was for somebody to finally adapt like peter jackson's lord of the rings in a very good like in it like um in the way that they did I feel like adapting the Silmarillion would be insane. I don't even know how you would do it. As a series, adapting the Silmarillion might work. It would have to be a very long series. And I don't know how you would do the music of the Ainur, uh, the first several chapters of Erul Luvatar creating the world, which is one of my favorite moments in all of literature. Absolutely love it. I know a lot of people can't stand to read it, but like trying to get the epicness of that and the creation of Arda into the into a medium like that, aside from storytelling, would be really difficult. Be interesting, but I think they're making a better choice with focusing on, hey, you know that the Lord of the Rings stories started after Sauron was already defeated. We're going to show you what he was doing up to that point, like when he was Anatar, the giver of gifts. And we're going to show you 
how he corrupted the world. I hope that they talk a little bit about Morgoth because it's really interesting for me as a huge Tolkien nerd to see people say, oh, Sauron is this great dark lord and he's so powerful. It's like, no, he, he was not a battlefield general even. He was just like, he was a, he was a henchman. Yeah. Like, he was a high-ranked henchman, but he was a seneschal, basically. He took care of, like, the daily operations of uh, Engban. He was not the great hero. But when you look at Morgoth, you really get to see this is what the big bad looks like. And we don't get to see him until uh, Dagar Dagaroth at the end of time. Exactly. So, moving back to the series, before we got to go um, take a break, um, do you think that, from what you've seen from the trailer, because a little bit, it's too early to really tell, given, you know, the series is going to be released in the fall, do you think that, um, do you get the impression that this is going to be a shameless, ca- like, cash grab, or do you get the impression that the people who are making it really care about it? So, my guess is that the, uh, the showrunners are going to really care. The executive producers are probably doing a shameless cash grab. And that a lot of times is the, the pain point when creating anything. You have pressure from the execs saying, you need to do these things because charts say that these things are profitable. And then you have other people trying to push back and say, but we're trying to tell this story. And... It doesn't always end well. Yeah, too many corporate hands in the pot usually end up stifling a lot of artistic creativity. Yeah. We'll see. Well, so um, Lord of the Rings and the Rings of Power is going to be a um, start airing on Amazon Prime. going to be released on Amazon Prime in September this year. We'll see how it goes. Um, we have, like, mixed um, opinions, mixed perspectives about it. But it could be good. It could prove us wrong. We'll see. We will take a short break. When we return, we're going to be talking about the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series and The Godfather 50 years later, right here on Reels and Riffs. Back in a moment. Listening to Reels and Riffs on Wright State's one and only radio station, WWSU 106.9, Dayton's Right Choice. You're listening to the only random in radio. Now back to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs. And on this day, March 24th in 1977, Fleetwood Mac released their first and only number one U.S. single, Dreams. I am joined again by my good friend and HEMA instructor, historical European martial arts instructor Frank Zamory. How does it feel to be back after that break? Feels good to be back. Thanks for having me, Random. Okay, so our next story that I wanted to talk about is the long-anticipated Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which is set to premiere May 25th, 2022. 
after the success of the Mandalorian and the mixed reception of to the Book of Boba Fett, a very mixed reception. There's a lot of buzz for this new series, especially with the plans to bring like Ewan McGregor back as the role in Obi-Wan for the first time since the prequels. The series follows an older, jaded, Ronin-esque Obi-Wan on Tatooine 10 years after the events of Revenge of the Sith, who's secretly looking after Luke. We also have Hayden Christensen returning as Anakin Skywalker or Darth Vader in some capacity. We don't fully know yet. And... We have a few other returning faces. Frank, are you excited for the show as a Star Wars fan? I am excited for it. Um, I I get excited for every piece of Star Wars media that comes out. I was a huge fan of Star Wars even when I was a little kid before the prequels came out. I loved the original trilogy. I read a bunch of the books. I read a bunch of the comics. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic is, I think, the best piece of star wars media that has ever come out and i will fight people over that one you will fight people literally i will fight you with a lightsaber and i'll let you pick which one of the seven lightsaber styles i will use that's the kind of star wars nerd i am definitely one of the cool things about like this series to me especially after a lot of the more recent stuff like um with the mandalorian and with book of boba fett yeah disappointment (laughs) in my voice um has really been focusing away from Jedi, which I thought was a good move with The Mandalorian, where you kind of have this, like, you know, side story, and you kind of, like, kind of bring the focus away from the main story. It adds a lot of depth to the universe, because it's such a huge universe, and it does get a little boring when you get this feeling that the only people who matter are the Force-sensitive people, that only if you have a high enough midichlorian count, you get to affect the story in a meaningful way. And so I really have enjoyed seeing that shift away from the focus on only for sensitive people to what's going on in the rest of the galaxy. How does the Star Wars world live and breathe? And I actually know some friends who, uh, they're not big fans of the Jedi. They like all of the stories that are not Jedi-centric. It's one of those where, and I agree to an extent, where um, you get to the point where it seems like the universe kind of, you know, wraps itself around a lot of these, you know, like Luke Skywalker and the main characters and like the prequels, like Obi-Wan and Anakin, where essentially they're affecting these galactic events. And it's similar to what we were talking about with Tolkien, where it's really nice to see there's depth there, where there's other stuff going on and there's other stories we can tell in this universe without it feeling out of place. Yeah, one of my biggest problems with Rey in the new trilogy was that she is Sheev Palpatine's child. And yes, his name is Sheev. Sheev. But um, I was really excited at the end of the second one when she gets told, uh, you're nothing. You're nobody. You have nameless parents. And I'm like, oh my God, there's a chance for somebody who is not a Skywalker to do something. And I did not want her to be a secret child of Obi-Wan with... uh, Oh, God, the Mandalorian woman. I can't remember her name. Oh, um, not, it starts with an ass. Sabine. Sabine, yes, yeah. thank you. Um, I didn't want her to be his child. I didn't want her to be like a secret lost love child of Luke somewhere along the way. I really liked the idea of her being just some random person. 
and then having her be the child of one of the most powerful force users of all time kind of took away from all of that possibility and closed the scope again just around these few characters. So I've really enjoyed getting to see the universe be bigger than that. I'm really excited in the show to, uh, as you said, see it kind of like a Ronin movie because Kurosawa was a huge influence on George Lucas in how he created these Star Wars movies. You can see the influences of Kurosawa on American Westerns and then on to the Star Wars story. And so getting to see that coming back into it with Obi-Wan is going to be really interesting because um, even The Mandalorian, a lot of people uh, compare it to Wolf and Cub, which yeah. uh, started out as a manga and a, a very old manga. Uh, and then became a film, into a series. film series where it was a grizzled old warrior uh, who finds a young child and it's him traveling around with this child and him trying to protect him and having to learn that his warrior ways are not the only way to take care of his adopted son, which, I mean, that sounds a little bit like what we see with Mando and Grogu. Yeah, it's one of those situations where one of the things that made me really like The Mandalorian, kind of to get back to what you were talking about, where it really took Star Wars back to its roots. It took that um, inspiration from, like, Star Wars is very much like a like a um, confluence of a bunch of different older ideals, film serials. You have older mm -hmm. westerns, like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, like older spaghetti westerns. And, of course, you have the samurai films of Akira Kurosawa, of which, like, Lucas was a huge fan. There's actually a Mandalorian episode in the first season where they essentially do seven samurai with the yeah. exact same village. And as a fan of samurai films, like, you know, that's something that I really liked seeing them incorporate all those elements that made Star Wars, like, great originally, like, with the first one, back into the series, because I think with some of the more recent properties, we've kind of strayed away from its influences. And it definitely, with this new, like, Obi-Wan series, I'm kind of getting that, some of that, um impression where they are trying to do a very they're trying to do like a ronin-esque story like with um kind of similar to like yojimbo um it was adapted into ooh, the clint eastwood film a fistful of dollars yep. where like you know oh he's obi-wan in the series they lost he's very jaded he's like he's become grizzled and i remember reading that ewan mcgregor is intentionally trying to channel a lot more alec guinness this time around even more than he was originally because he's kind of at that midpoint between a new hope and revenge of the sith yeah and he's now gone through the experiences that led from obi-wan to becoming ben kenobi we are seeing that transition so it's going to be really interesting to see how how Order 66, how the fall of the Republic, the rise of the Empire, how all of that has affected him and his view even of the Jedi Order and seeing, wow, we missed all of these signs for so long. We had become stagnant. Is he going to see those are the kind of problems that were endemic to the Jedi Order, or is he just going to be mad that, oh no, bad guys won? So I'm really interested to see how he develops with that. 
I am still disappointed that he was dumb enough to go back to some of the only living relatives of Anakin and say, here, I'm going to drop his son off with you. No one's going to think to look there. Yeah. That, but you can't get rid of that. It's... Yeah, that's from A New Hope. So, you know, it's already, you know, it was already from there from the beginning. I'm going to make a really bad meme reference. Well, naturally, Darth Vader would never go back there himself because, because of all the sand. Sandy. Yeah, because of all the sand. It's rough. It gets, gets everywhere. everywhere. Gets everywhere, but hopefully not like the Obi-Wan show. <laughs> <laughs> ah, bad, bad prequel memes. But um, I'm definitely... Them bringing back Hayden Christensen kind of intrigues me because out of, like, the prequels themselves, especially, like, kind of after, like, you know, they've gotten more of a favorable reception now after the sequels, but especially, like, right after they stopped um, coming out, they kind of got, like, you know... a kind of a worse critical reception and hating Christensen's acting ability was one of the very, you know, common criticisms. I'm wondering if, you know, them bringing back Hayden in like um, some kind of capacity, we don't know if he can really redeem himself in the eyes of fans. So I think there are two things at play. One is the uh, Clone Wars series has done a lot to rehabilitate fans' perception of Anakin Skywalker. A lot of people when the prequels came out were still remembering him as the annoying nine-year-old kid who was hitting on Padme. And he didn't... Are you an angel? Yeah. Wizards, that's... I'll try spinning, that's a good trick. I'm sorry. And he didn't get a ton better in the second film, and we see him be, you know, angsty and rebellious, which makes sense for how you go from Jedi to Darth Vader but it's annoying to watch him go through that transition, which I think was part of the point. Yeah. And then we see uh, him as a much more developed character in the third one. He and Natalie Portman had absolutely no chemistry, but that aside, I think that the view of his character is so much better now that people will be more receptive to it. The other thing that I think needs to be mentioned is a lot of times it is a problem with the directing and the dialogue of George Lucas, yeah. he does not always know how to pull the best out of his actors. And we saw that he really pushed for that very stilted performance, that very stoic uh, and serene holding of themselves throughout the prequel trilogy. Whereas in the original trilogy, he didn't have as heavy of a hand. And people like Harrison Ford would just say, that line's dumb and ad-lib a lot of stuff. He actually regularly refused to say lines that were written for him because he thought that it was bad. In fact, his possibly his most famous lines are Harrison Ford improving the never tell me the odds, the I love you, I know. That was not from the script. That was all improv. So I do think that without without a push to have that more stilted acting, that we have a chance to see a better representation of Hayden Christensen. There are some directors who that's what they like. Um, another great example of that is anything done by M. Night Shyamalan. He can take yeah. wonderful and emotive actors and just gives them such bad lines to read and then directs them to be so flat in their delivery 
that you can't get a good performance out of it, no matter how good the actual actor is. And I think that Star Wars, especially in the prequels, saw a lot of that happen. But when you get into the Clone Wars, his character becomes far more interesting, far more dynamic. Still disagree that he sh should never have been given Ashoka Thano as his Padawan, especially because he was still a knight at the time, but we're not getting into that. One of the biggest things, I think part of it is that Lucas is really more of an ideal. Like, you know, he's really good at, like, creating, like, I, you know, big ideals for, like, the world and, like, the overall, like, you know, big, like, big creative ideals for, like, the world of Star Wars. As far as being, like, um, he's not an actor's director, and he really needs people around him. Like, especially during the first film, there was a lot of people around him, um, and, you know, who um, would, you know, give him feedback, give him honest feedback. By the time we got to the prequels, he kind of, people, um, there, was, there wasn't a lot of people around him to actually give him feedback on some of the stuff, because, you know, he's the creator of Star Wars, he can do no wrong, and it, it kind of leads to a decrease in quality in some respects. I have to agree. Um Nobody wanted to be the person to contradict him or rein him in. But if you ask most Star Wars fans, what's your favorite Star Wars movie? Episode 5 is real high up on that list. And that wasn't and directed by him. It was the film where he had the least creative input. Um, and his least favorite. Yep. But I that is my personal favorite. I think it is the best of the series. And yeah, his world is great but yeah he has big ideas but he doesn't always know how to execute them uh the scene of the death star in the first cut of the movie the death star they just attacked the death star when it was hanging out it was not on its way to attack the rebel base on hoth his ex-wife is the one who re-edited all of that which is why you see some of the charge-up scenes be the exact same, because they only shot it once. She uh, re-edited it so that there was actual tension. drama and tension, because the core question of any scene is, what happens if the heroes don't win? Well, if the heroes don't win when you're attacking it was just floating out in space, you get another chance later. If you don't destroy it in the movie that came out, that means the Rebel Alliance is dead because your last major base is blown up. Everything is lost. So he does, and every good director needs someone behind them to really help pull things together. But I think more than average, Lucas needs that guiding help and hands. Because, I mean, at one point he wanted to make the new uh, trilogy about the wills which do you know what the wills are they were i know that they're an they were an early concept for his first um script of star wars and i think that they have been incorporated into the universe at some point into the yeah. final universe but i know that it was um that was actually part of the original title for star wars yeah and he wanted to make it about these even more microscopic than midi-chlorian little things that allow the force to interact with the real world. So he basically wanted to make a series about Higgs bosons. Naturally. That was his goal. And I'm sorry, I don't think that even as much of a Star Wars fan as I am, I could have enjoyed that. That's a step too far even for you. 
the biggest thing with this obi-wan series i'm very curious as to like how they're going to take obi-wan's character and i feel like we're going to get a very personal story and that's part of what i like you know i'm very excited about this um series for the obi like obi-wan kenobi um starts in may this year and we're both going to be like very excited about it and i'll probably talk about it on this show as we get closer to the release date but now before we go to our song of the week the godfather it turns 50 years old today that is so crazy to me like that the 70s were 50 years ago now and that the godfather is that old yeah it is a little weird to think about like the fact that 1922 is as close to 1970 as we are to 1970 or somewhere thereabouts wow yeah and i mean the godfather is one of the I think one of the greatest pieces of film, uh, the cinematography, the music, the use of themes, all of it is fantastic. And so there's a reason why it's been so heavily emulated throughout the years and why so many people have taken so much influence from it, whether they are actively trying to recreate the scenes or they're just uh, doing a Zootopia and jokingly referencing it they know that it's become such a big part of the cultural zeitgeist that this is one of those touchstone movies. Now, I'm a little biased. I'm an Italian-American. I grew up in Youngstown, which used to be a mafia town. We've gotten better. You've gotten better, okay. But, like, for me, I grew up with a very large Italian family, and, you know, we weren't all wearing suits and knocking people and, off and but, making people you know offers they couldn't refuse but we were taking the cannoli i will say that fair enough but, fair um, enough so that's one of those things where hell that was the uh that was the movie that my brother had playing in the background while uh all the groomsmen were getting ready on his wedding day because yeah we're a bunch of italians and I will avoid using any uh, racial slurs for Italians just because we are on the air. We are on the radio, yes. The The Godfather is definitely one of the most influential and like revolutionary movies, like even today of our time. And it it's crazy to me how it almost like, you know, didn't happen in the way that, you know, it ended up coming about where like Francis Ford Coppola coming into the Godfather, he was like his claim to fame. He started off working with Roger Corman, the BB movie director who actually worked with a lot of very famous um, people like, um, like, um, not Peter Jackson, um, like Jack Nicholson. He worked with, um, a few other famous directors, and then Francis Ford Coppola got really his like name, like claim to fame, where he when he um, wrote the script for Patton, mm-hmm. and then he got like uh, an award for that, and then they kind of let him like you know attempt to do an adaptation of The Godfather. But one of the things they really fought him on, and this sounds crazy in retrospective, is having Marlon Brando as you know the role of like um, you know as like the lead role. They really fought him on having Marlon Brando. Yeah, I and mean, part of it was Marlon Brando was. He, he was rebel without a cause. He was yeah. a sex symbol and the young, angry man. And now to see him as older, more physically frail, that was, at the time, a huge risk. 
Not to mention Marlon Brando also Nightmare was, to work with. Yeah. He was known to be rather difficult to work with. Um, I forget which film it was in. Uh, it was either this or Dr. Moreau, The Island of Dr. Moreau, that uh, he just refused to le- learn his lines, and so people had to stand with cue cards over his co-star's uh, shoulders for scenes. I got a funny story about that. It's oh, for yeah. practically every practically every film, unfortunately, like in his later career. Like for Superman, for example, where he plays the role of Jor-El, he um, had to have his lines written on the baby's diaper, on the like little Kal-El's diaper that, you know, he would read while he was... Um, he, he'd do them amazingly because, of course, Marlon Brando, but he had to have the lines like right there so he could just take a look and read. And even during The Godfather, they had to have somebody off camera holding up like his lines because he would not bother to read... He would not bother to learn them the night before. Yeah, that's it's a very different way of going about how you want to emote. But, I mean, kudos to him for being able yeah. to, in the moment, capture that emotion of the scene so well and deliver those lines without, you know, going through all of the work of figuring out, you know, character motivation and going into trying to feel, how would this person react? this situation what would make me feel right to say these words he just kind of somehow managed to make it work which he's an example of he is a natural talent and even if he didn't put um effort into it he's one of those people where in this very rare case procrastination uh, you know won out because he just you know he could go on there he wasn't at that point in his life he wasn't really a big fan of acting as far as like you know oh seeing it as like a craft he was more of i i make money from this but he was just so good like he had a natural talent yeah he was not he was not a method actor he's not going like anthony hopkins level of anything but daniel day lewis who you know breaks up with his girlfriend, loses a whole bunch of weight, learns how to actually play the piano for a single movie role. Naturally. Or, you know, when he was Lincoln, he he had to be addressed by everybody on set as Mr. Mr. President, President, including the, I think, who directed that? I think it was, I, I, wanted, I want to say Spielberg, but I'm pretty sure it's not Spielberg. I'm not sure off the top of my head, sorry. That is, well, so moving back to The Godfather, it is one of my favorite films, as you've said, is one of your favorite films and is definitely something where if you have not seen it and, you know, this morning when we talked about on the morning show, I was surprised by the few people in the room who hadn't seen it. Go see The Godfather is truly one of the greatest movies of our time. But now before we go to our last break and then we come back for the interview, we are going to go to our song of the week. Pull out your turntable and spin those vinyls. This is Reels and Riffs Song of the Week. Welcome to the Song of the Week. This is the segment of our show where either myself or the guest picks a song that is either important to us in some way or related to something that we're talking about. So, Frank, what song are are our listeners going to be listening to today? Oh, that's entirely fine. Um, well, since um, since we were talking about Led Zeppelin, or since we were talking about Lord of the Rings earlier, and some of the biggest um, fans of Tolkien, even before it was cool to be fans of Tolkien, 
We're Led Zeppelin. Our song of the week this week is Battle for Evermore. It is a truly great track where it starts off with this. It's one of the best like acoustic Zeppelin tracks. It tells a strong story, and it shows um, how well-read um, the members of Led Zeppelin were. When we return, when we return, we are going to be visiting with Frank Zamory, a professional HEMA instructor, and asking him about what HEMA is, where you can practice it today. You're listening to Reels and Riffs, back in a moment. with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9 FM. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs. We are finally at our final segment of the day, folks. I am joined as, like, for the rest of the show by Frank Zamory. He is a HEMA instructor with Royal Arts Fencing Academy. Now, to start off and pretending as if I'm somebody who doesn't know anything about HEMA, which maybe I am, maybe I'm not, before we start, for our audience who might not know, what is historical European martial arts or historical fencing, and how does it differ from Olympic fencing? So, um, the main thing that makes HEMA HEMA is that H. It is the historical aspect of it. Uh, the main thing that what we do is we take manuals that were written anywhere from around 1300 is the earliest one we have with the Volpelges Fechtbuch, also known as the Tower Fechtbuch, also known as the 133, um, all the way up to uh, there are people who even study American Civil War manuals and learn saber from that. So we have this huge amount of historical manuals that were written by people in those time periods. This is not, oh, these are moves I made up in my backyard. We have actual documented historical masters who wrote books on if you have a sword and you need to hit someone with that sword and not get hit by their sword, here are the things to do. And so we get the books translated by people far smarter than I am. And then we try to recreate that art and use that in as earnest and honest a way as we can. Um, comparing it to Olympic fencing... The rules are much different, and the weapons are much heavier. Um, Royal Arts is, first and foremost, a sport fencing academy. So the Olympic side is their, their classes are bigger. It helps because they can have little kids, and it's not as safe to give a little kid a three-pound longsword. Most of the time, no. But, um, so we do a bunch of different weapons, uh, Olympic has three weapons. They have the foil, the epe, and the saber. HEMA can include a huge number of weapons from longsword, which is the most common the world over, uh, rapier and dagger, saber, messer, dagger, grappling arts. All of these are part of HEMA. And depending on what you want to do, you can do some, all of them. There are some people I know who have said, nope, 
I'm longsword, longsword only. That's the only weapon I'm going to focus on. I know people who every couple of weeks they're picking up a new manual and, hey, I want to try this thing. And that's one of the things I love about HEMA is it's so broad and it has so many things for so many different people. But the thing that all comes down to is we have manuals for how to do it. We are not having the problem of uh, what a lot of Eastern martial arts had, where it is passed down oral tradition, master to student, master to student, master to student, over hundreds of years. Like Bagua Zhang, for example, only came about in, I believe, about the 1800s. But one generation after its first master, there were already three unique schools, and all three of them fight differently because each of those three heads had a different interpretation of how Bagua Zhang is supposed to be done. Whereas in Hima, the problem we have is we have the words of the master. We have exactly what they said written down here in front of us. But now we need to figure out what the hell they meant. And sometimes that's hard. One of the things that helps is when you have enough related manuals that are all talking about similar things, you can use different manuals to kind of cross-reference and check. So um, what I do is German Longsword primarily, uh, also known as KDF or Kunst des Fechtens. And that's all based on the writings of Johannes Lichtenauer, who wrote sometime, we believe, in the 1300s, uh, possibly early 1400s. And he had the Gesellschaft Lichtenauer, the Society of Lichtenauer, who came after him, and he wrote a poem to help you remember all the art. But the poem by itself doesn't make any sense. But he has students who came after him who wrote down, when he writes this little couplet, he means this. So we have Sigmund Schreining on Hringek. We have the Pseudo von Danzig. We have uh, Yud Lu, who was a Jewish fencing master. And we can look at all three of their books, and they're all on the same topic. And we can kind of compare and contrast and figure out what they are doing. And if you don't like that, you can go with Fiore de Libieri, who wrote uh, somewhere around 1420. He was an Italian fencing master. If you want to go later, you can go with the Bolognese traditions with uh, people like Manciolino, who also were doing longsword, but have a very different approach to it. So it's really cool to have all of these different ideas floating around. But one of the big things that's important to HEMA is we do a lot of pressure testing, so we spar a lot. And tournaments are pretty common and are a way that we like to test. Uh, back in the early days of HEMA, when I got started, uh, back in the late aughts, there were a lot of armchair warriors who, no, I know exactly how to fight with a sword. And they would never actually test to see if they knew what they were doing. And then when the tournament scene started, suddenly our ideas about how fighting works changed a lot because we now had a real place to see, okay, this is my interpretation. I am going to test my interpretation. Huh, I got hit in the head a whole lot. Maybe my interpretation is bad, and you could throw that out and start over. So that's one of the things that's really made HEMA grow so much in the past decade or so, is we've kind of gotten past that early stage where it's all very cerebral and we were arguing ad nauseum about 
what does this one word mean? And now we get to get out there and hit each other with swords. And if what you're doing works, you hit someone. If what you're doing doesn't work, you, you get, get hit. hit. I was um, wanted to get a little bit into that more about how you personally became involved with the, like, what got you interested in the, like, sword fighting initially? And when what got you involved with the HEMA community? So, uh, for what got me interested in swords, uh, call back to the beginning of the episode, uh, Lord of the Rings. It, I was always a huge fan of medieval history. Uh, I minored in that in college. Um, so, knights, swords, all that stuff was really cool to me. But there was no, like, Hema was not a known thing when I was young. Uh, yep. I did three different martial arts when I was young. I did Bagua Zhang, Wing Chun Gong Fu, and Judo Kwan. And though none of those were exactly what I wanted, but I had been in martial arts from the time I was very young. Uh, I was, the way I discovered HEMA, I was hanging out with some friends, and these are the kind of people I hang out with. We were showing knife techniques to each other. And Naturally. someone pulled out a move that I had never seen before. I'm like, what's that from? I don't recognize that. Is that a schema? He's like, oh, no, it's from this 500-year-old book on German sword fighting. I'm like, that's a thing you can do. And uh, as soon as I learned about that, I went, found the nearest club, which by dumb luck uh, was at Columbus, where uh, I went to school at OSU and met up with Jaron Bernstein in 2008. And I've been doing it ever since. Uh, I've been primarily running the club since about 2009. I've been teaching since 2008. Uh, I've been doing tournaments, and I've got a box full of medals, so some people would say that I do well with that. I would say that I do well because I have students who have medals, and that's what's important to me, because for me, yeah, if I can do it, cool. But if I can show someone else how to do it, that means that the underlying theories are there, and that means something is working right, and just getting to spread my love of doing swordsmanship is a big thing for me. Uh, the joke I always make about it is if you see one guy alone in the park swinging a sword, you might think he's kind of crazy. If you think, if you see two people swinging swords at each other in the park, you might think they're a little weird. If you see 10 people, you think it's a class. So the more people doing HEMA, the less weird I look for doing it. I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. I was going to, um, as far as, like, um, to to talk about, you know, beginners coming into HEMA, one of the things you mentioned that was interesting to me is that there's definitely a big difference between being a good fighter and being able to be a good instructor. And I think you kind of have, like, the confluence of both those aspects. In your opinion, what is, like, the most unique aspect of HEMA in comparison to, like, other martial arts? And what can beginners expect coming into, like, um, HEMA with no knowledge on, like, let's just say the first day of class at your club? So I would say the most unique aspect about HEMA is just its breadth. How many options you have. Um, I am a book nerd, in case you didn't get that from earlier in the show. I love sitting down with the historical manuals. Um, I went to D.C. over Thanksgiving break to visit my in-laws. I went to the Library of Congress where they have a copy of 
uh, Joachim Meyer's 1570 Kunstesfechtens, which is an original printing of a nearly 500-year-old book. And I spent six hours just hanging out with that book, reading an original copy in the original uh, early High German. That's the kind of person I am. I'm really into that very historical side of things. But I have other students who are, I will read the manuals, but only so I can hit people better. I tend to break students down into three categories. There's the fighter, the scholar, and the player. The fighter wants to win fights, and they don't much care about anything else. The scholar wants to understand the history or the techniques, and they might be really good at explaining, this is what the book says to do, but may not be as good as the fighter at applying it. And then the player is just the person who is, this is a neat hobby. There are swords, and I get to hit people with them. And, like, all three of those are very valid, and every person is some combination of the three. But knowing what motivates people really helps that. Um, the things you can expect, uh, a lot of nerdy jokes, a lot of references to Monty Python and to Star Wars and to Lord of the Rings. Uh, but usually, Hema uh, is a very young martial art, despite the fact that we have documentation of it going back 700 years. But the modern practice The modern of practice, it. like, it started a little bit in the 80s, and it wasn't until, like, 2008 2010 that we started to get our act together and it wasn't even until like 2013 2015 that we started to see tournaments happening in the US so it is it's a lot more laid back than I know you have a background in kendo kendo is very systematized very strict it's very strict there are procedures for everything how you enter when you bow, how far you are supposed to bow, where you set your sword. Most Hema places are a lot more relaxed than that. Uh, there is no standard uniform for the vast majority of Hema schools. So you can show up in just your athletic wear. You don't have to come in and then get yelled at because you're not wearing your hakama. But um, yeah, if people are interested in it, uh, the place I would send them to would be the HEMA Alliance Club Finder. Uh, if you just search that in Google, you'll find it. Uh, what you would have around here uh, in Dayton, Gem City is probably your closest place. Uh, I think I've heard of them. They have some great folks down there. Uh, and I really enjoy you know, getting to spread my love of HEMA to people. So I encourage anyone who's interested in swords or sword-related stuff, go look at it, check it out. You might find that, you know, okay, longsword isn't for me, but I found I really like rapier. Or I found that I really like saber. Rapier, saber, and longsword are Ohio's kind of big three weapons. I'm trying to make Messer make a comeback, but we'll see how that, how that goes long term. But... um yeah, I encourage everyone to give it a chance if you can make it. It's been one of the greatest joys of my life. I've dedicated many years to it, many hours, and it's one of those things that I find wildly fulfilling. I think that's a pretty good note to end on. 
This has been Frank Zamory, professional HEMA instructor with the Royal with the Royal Arts Fencing Academy in Columbus. Um, do you want to give any shout-outs before we end out the show, Frank? Um, no, I hadn't actually thought of anyone that I want to give a specific shout-out to. So I'll give a shout-out to Gem City uh, since, you know, I'm down here at uh, Wright State. So Gem City, love you guys. Hope to hit you soon. Hope to hit you soon. HEMA is probably, well, okay, it's one of the very few um, activities where you can say that and mean it in the nice way. <laughs> it's been great having you on the show, Frank. I hope to have you back at some point again. We had a very nerdy conversation, but in that, in this case, that's a good thing. Thank you so much for having me. You have a good day. You too. You've been listening to Reels and Riffs. We will be back next week. And next week, we are joined by star of the Highland of Highlander the series, Adrian Paul. See you then. This has been Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. If you missed an episode, tune in to Reels and Riffs on Spotify. Follow Reels and Riffs on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week on Wright State's one and only radio station, WWSU 106.9 FM, Dayton's Right Choice.